Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. On a freezing January day in 1153, Henry Plantagenet stood outside its walls in a belligerent mood, preparing to destroy what little was left of the town. He had been blown ashore after a rough and dangerous winter crossing of the Channel. It was Epiphany, the eight-day festival when Christians celebrate the visit of three kings to the infant Jesus. But Henry came not to pay homage, but to overthrow the king, with an invading force of a hundred and forty knights and three thousand infantry, armed to the teeth. The author of the Gesta Stefani described the scene. When a crowd of common people flew to the wall surrounding the town as though to defend it, Henry ordered the infantry, men of the greatest cruelty, whom he had brought with him, some to assail the defenders with arrows and missiles, others to devote all their efforts to demolishing the wall. The din would have been tremendous, the whiz of crossbow bolts, the screams of the fleeing townsfolk, and the crash of great rocks pitched up at the castle walls by the siege machines. Torrential rain and winds lashed besiegers and defenders alike, soaking mud clung to them all. Ladders were placed against the wall, and Henry's fierce mercenaries scaled them with ease. The townsfolk ran in terror to the church, seeking sanctuary with the resident community of monks. The mercenaries, having vaulted the walls, pursued them. If the chronicler is to be believed, the church was plundered, the monks and priests were butchered, and the altar was desecrated. King Stephen had been expecting the invasion, but he had not foreseen an attack on Malmesbury. His royal forces were besieging the rebel town of Wallingford, and he had expected Henry to join him there in battle. Henry refused to be drawn. Stephen was obliged to go meet the invader. It was a huge army with many barons, their banners glittering with gold, beautiful and terrible indeed, wrote Henry of Huntingdon. But God, in whom alone is safety, was not with them. The weather was foul, and the men who marched with Stephen had little faith in their leader. The floodgates of heaven opened, and such bitter cold gusts of wind and pouring rain were driven into their faces that God himself seemed to be fighting for the duke. The king's army could barely hold their weapons or their dripping wet lances. Drenched and demoralized, Stephen's army refused to fight. The civil war had dragged on long enough, and the conditions in which they were expected to relieve a siege were nothing short of treacherous. There was little promise of reward or advance in the battle, and Stephen now had a mutiny on his hands. The king retreated without effecting his purpose, wrote William of Newborough. The first victory of the invasion had been won. Writing in retrospect, William of Newborough noted that after Malmesbury, the nobles of England gradually revolted to Henry, insomuch as that, by the augmentation of his power and the brilliancy of his successes, the fame of the duke obscured the kingly title of his opponent. But it was not quite that simple. As he took stock of his position, Henry discovered a realm in a state of total war-weariness. It was his response to these conditions, as much as his military successes, 
that enabled him to make advances beyond those achieved by his mother. One of the first things Henry realized was that the mercenaries he had brought with him inspired fear rather than trust. England was already teeming with hired foreign soldiers, and they were deeply resented by the people. Being unable to endure their bestial and brutal presumption any longer, the barons suggested to the duke that he should allow his mercenaries to go home, lest on account of their shameful forwardness some calamity should befall him or his men by the vengeance of God, recorded the jester Stefani. Showing a flexibility of mind that was to serve him well in the future, Henry listened. He sent five hundred of his mercenaries back across the channel to Normandy. As they sailed, a mighty storm blew up and drowned them all. Instead of inflicting more war on an exhausted kingdom, Henry made peaceful overtures toward barons and bishops alike. Channels of negotiation with Stephen were opened, under the guidance of Archbishop Theobald of Canterbury and Bishop Henry of Winchester, and slowly the magnates came over to the young duke. The most important baron to join Henry's cause was Robert, Earl of Leicester. He and his twin, Walleran, were among the elite of the Anglo-Norman nobility who had been loyal to Stephen for many years. That Leicester was a powerful landowner in the Midlands gave Henry a vital territorial advantage in the heart of England. But the Earl also brought important personal qualities and experience to Henry's following, and proved to be one of Henry's most trusted and reliable servants for the remainder of his life. He was, in fact, an excellent archetype for the sort of noble that Henry both attracted and needed. Leicester was in his late forties, literate and well-schooled. He had been brought up with William the Etheling, and as children he and Walleran had been the young darlings of the European courts, debating for show with cardinals while they were still precocious youngsters. The twins had been loyal to Henry I and Stephen, but Stephen's inability to guarantee their lands in Normandy had chipped away at their political will. Leicester embodied the complex position of any number of the Anglo-Norman magnates. Torn between their Norman estates guaranteed by the Plantagenet Duke of Normandy and the English lands theoretically protected by Stephen. The task for Henry was to convince more men like Leicester that he could protect their property in England as well as in Normandy, rather than subject it to further ruin and war. That, after all, was the underlying purpose of kingship. Henry spent the spring of 1153 on a vigorous publicity drive. After visiting Bristol and Gloucester, both bastions of support for his mother, he made his way through the turbulent Midlands, where an uneasy peace was kept by a patchwork of individual treaties between magnates. This land was the ultimate emblem of the failures of Stephen's reign. Public authority was non-existent. At the heart of Henry's new pitch was good lordship, not good generalship. Instead of ravaging lands, he held court around the country, and invited the great noblemen to come to him in peace. Rather than burn crops, he issued charters guaranteeing the land and legal rights of the magnates, not only in England but in Normandy too. He indicated his commitment to judicial process by asserting that his grants of English lands were subject to legal ratification. Moving around England in a circuit that came to look more and more like a triumphant tour, he presented himself at every turn as a credible alternative king. Yet battle could not entirely be avoided. In July 1153 Henry met Stephen at Wallingford, a town nestled inside a long bend in the Thames, southeast of Oxford and dangerously close to Westminster and London. Stephen had the castle loyal to Henry under siege. The area was sown with a series of smaller royal castles and ditchworks built in a semi-permanent ring of defence. Henry approached with an army to relieve the siege, but also with a sense that an end to the war was near. King Stephen had been waiting. In early August he marched a splendid army out to meet the Duke. Once again, as at Malmesbury, there was a general refusal to fight. In the words of Gesta Stefani, the leading men on both sides shrank from a conflict which was not merely between fellow countrymen, but meant the desolation of the whole kingdom. Men were not tired of Stephen's rule per se, they were tired of war. 
The barons, those betrayers of England, were unwilling to fight a battle, as they did not want either side to win, wrote Henry of Huntingdon. But these betrayers of England were men who had suffered nearly two decades of civil war, and who realized that victory for either side in battle was likely to result in mass land confiscations and continued bitter divisions in the realm. The time for a cease-fire had arrived. Henry and Stephen agreed to talk. The king and the duke had a conference alone together across a small stream about making a lasting peace, wrote Huntingdon. The peace treaty was begun here, but not completed until another occasion. The terms of peace were growing obvious to both sides. Stephen would have to recognize Henry Plantagenet as his legal heir to the crown, and begin a process by which the deep wounds of their family's war could be healed. Only one major obstacle remained. King Stephen's eldest son, Eustace IV, Count of Boulogne, had grown up knowing nothing but division and war. He had been told that he was a king-in-waiting, and had been encouraged to fight for the sake of securing his crown. Eustace had made it his business to see that the Norman chronicler Robert of Torigny's assessment that almost all of the Normans thought that Duke Henry would rapidly lose all of his possessions came true as rapidly as possible. To that end he had allied with Louis VII, whose sister Constance he had married, and Henry's own brother Geoffrey Plantagenet the Younger. Together they had contrived to wage war against the Duke of Normandy wherever and whenever they could. Eustace stood to lose the most in any rapprochement between Stephen and Henry. His position was unusually weak. An argument between Stephen and Pope Eugene III meant that in 1153 Eustace had not yet been anointed as co-king, in the manner that was now customary. This paved the way for an eventual peace in which Stephen could disinherit his sons, Eustace had a younger brother, William, and name Henry as his heir. After Wallingford that seemed more and more likely. According to the author of the Gesta Stefani, Eustace was greatly vexed and angry because the war, in his opinion, had reached no proper conclusion. To give vent to some of this anger and frustration, he stormed eastward to bury St. Edmunds, where he indulged in a bout of fairly pointless burning and pillaging. Alas for the unfortunate Eustace, God, or perhaps St. Edmund, was on hand to punish the iniquitous. Shortly after his self-indulgent orgy of violence and rapine, Eustace fell ill. He died in early August 1153, just twenty-three years old. The cause was thought to be either rotten food or sheer grief, though some have suspected poison. Eustace's death was heartbreaking to Stephen, who had lost his precious wife Matilda the previous year. Yet it was also providential, in that it opened the path for negotiations that would allow Duke Henry to take his place. The agreement took the form of a sort of legal fostering that would hand the crown to the Plantagenet line and end the war for good. Stephen's second son William, evidently more tractable than his elder brother, accepted a large landed settlement in recompense for abandoning any claim to the throne. Discussions between the two parties took place throughout August, September, and October, overseen by Archbishop Theobald of Canterbury and King Stephen's brother Henry, Bishop of Winchester. In November 1153, at a conference in Winchester, a formal truce was agreed upon. Stephen formally adopted Henry as his son and heir. What inestimable joy! What blessed day! cheered Henry of Huntingdon. The king himself received the young prince at Winchester with a magnificent procession of bishops and nobles through the cheering crowds. England could harbour its greatest hope of peace and prosperity under a single unified and universal royal authority since 1135. The peace was sealed in a highly symbolic venue and ceremony. Winchester was the place where English kingship was sanctified. The Old Minster was the resting place of St. Swithin, the Anglo-Saxon bishop credited with numerous miracles, including the ability to restore broken eggs to wholeness, and of Saxon kings such as Edwig, who, like Stephen, had ruled in war-torn times. The great men of the land gathered in the chill of the cathedral to be addressed by King Stephen and Duke Henry. 
what a pair they made. The sixty-one-year-old Stephen performed his role with dignity. A mild man, and gentle and good, was how the jester Stefani described him. Next to the impish, scruffy, twenty-year-old redhead, he seemed a relic of a departing generation. But he stood with grace and spoke to the congregation, uttering words that would have had his eldest son spinning in his grave. "'Know that I, King Stephen, appoint Henry, Duke of Normandy, after me as my successor in the Kingdom of England, and my heir by hereditary right,' Stephen said. "'Thus I give and confirm to him and his heirs the Kingdom of England.' Henry made a similar statement. Then, in the presence of all his future nobles, he did homage to Stephen, and received the homage of Stephen's younger son, William. It was an open and wholly visible representation of the new order of things. A new narrative of royal lineage had been publicly constructed. The legal chaos of a usurpation or deposition was avoided. Through sound military leadership and brilliant diplomacy, Henry had muscled his way into the line of succession. The celebrations were lavish. Stephen swept into England's ancient capital with his newly adopted son. The illustrious young man was gloriously received in the city of Winchester, led by the king with a glittering procession of bishops and famous men, wrote William of Newborough. Then the king took the duke to London, and there he was received with joy by an innumerable assembly of common people with splendid processions. The truce of Winchester was formally sealed and distributed at Westminster. Peace dawned on the ruined realm, wrote Henry of Huntingdon, putting an end to its troubled night. During the limbo that prevailed between Henry's acceptance as heir and Stephen's death, the old king agreed to act on the next king's advice. Together they began the long process of cleaning up the broken kingdom. There were three key tasks— suppressing violence and spoliation, ejecting the gangs of hired foreign mercenaries that had flooded the country, and levelling the castles that had sprung up since Stephen's accession. There were still extremist factions that disapproved of the peace process. At a meeting in Canterbury in March 1154, Henry was informed of a plot against his life by dissident Flemings. It was alleged that Stephen's son William knew about it. Judging that the situation in England was now stable enough to make his continued presence unnecessary, and dangerous enough to justify his departure, Henry decided to return to Normandy. As Stephen went on progress to the north of England, and busied his administrators with the task of circulating a new coinage, Henry left England that March, taking a discreet route to the Channel via Rochester and London. In late October 1154, Henry was campaigning with Louis VII against rebellious vassals in the borderland region between Normandy and France known as the Vexin, when news reached him that Stephen was dead. According to the chronicler Gervais of Canterbury, Stephen had been meeting with the Count of Flanders on October 25, 1154, when he was taken ill. The king was suddenly seized with a violent pain in his gut, accompanied by a flow of blood, as had happened to him before, wrote Gervais. After he had taken to his bed in Dover Priory, he died. Stephen was buried in the Cluniac Monastery in Faversham, Kent, alongside his wife, Queen Matilda, and his intemperate son, Eustace. Stephen died disconsolate. He was a man obsessed with royal dignity and ceremony, and his failure to freely anoint one of his sons as heir would have been compounded by the humiliation of losing the loyalty and support of his sworn nobles. But if his reign was a dismal failure, the peace that followed was a resounding success, negotiated well and upheld by the admirable will of the major magnates. Henry and Stephen had successfully created a vehicle to ensure the first peaceful transfer of royal power for nearly seventy years. When Henry came to England to claim his crown in December 1154, it was at his leisure, knowing that he was wanted and implicitly accepted by the political community as king. His wife, Eleanor, arrived at his side. She had given birth to a son, William, in August 1153, and was now pregnant again, soon due to deliver. The succession at last seemed secure. 
Henry promised stability and a single universal authority such as had been sorely missing for the last miserable nineteen years. What was more, he had proven himself. There was sycophancy, no doubt, in Henry Bishop of Huntingdon's invocation on the coming of the king, but there was real hope, too. "'England, long numbed by mortal chill, now you grow warm, revived by the heat of a new sun. You raise the country's bowed head, and with tears of sorrow wiped away, you weep for joy. With tears you utter these words to your foster-child, "'You are spirit, I am flesh. Now as you enter, I am restored to life.'" Part Two, Age of Empire, eleven fifty four to twelve o four. A king who fights to defend his right has a better claim on his inheritance. Struggle and largesse allow a king to gain glory and territory. Bertrand de Borne. Births and Rebirth. Henry II was crowned at Westminster Abbey on December 19, 1154, with a heavily pregnant Queen Eleanor sitting beside him. Judging by her near-constant state of pregnancy and childbirth, which contrasted sharply with her time as Queen of France, Eleanor had thrown herself enthusiastically into establishing a royal dynasty with Henry. The elderly Archbishop Theobald of Canterbury performed the sacred ceremony, and the great bishops and magnates of England looked on. Henry was the first ruler to be crowned King of England, rather than the old form King of the English, and the coronation brought with it a spirit of great popular optimism. "'Throughout England the people shouted, "'Long live the King!' wrote William of Newborough. "'They hoped for better things from the new monarch,' especially when they saw he possessed remarkable prudence, constancy, and zeal for justice, and at the very outset already manifested the likeness of a great prince. Henry's coronation charter addressed all the great men of the realm, assuring them that he would grant them all the concessions, gifts, liberties, and freedoms that Henry I had allowed, and that he would likewise abolish evil customs. He made no specific promises, and unlike his predecessor Stephen, he did not hark back to the good laws and good customs enjoyed by English subjects in the days of Edward the Confessor. But the Charter mentioned specifically Henry's desire to work toward the common restoration of my whole realm. England found its new twenty-one-year-old king well-educated, legally-minded, and competent in a number of languages although he spoke only Latin and the French dialects. He struck his contemporaries as almost impossibly purposeful, hunting and hawking and sweeping at a headlong pace through the forests and parks of his vast lands. Gerald of Wales described him as addicted to the chase beyond measure. At crack of dawn he was often on horseback, traversing wastelands, penetrating forests and climbing the mountaintops, and so he passed restless days. At evening on his return home he was rarely seen to sit down, either before or after supper. He would wear the whole court out by continual standing. And then he was a man of easy access and condescending, pliant and witty, second to none in politeness, strenuous in warfare, very prudent in civil life. He was fierce toward those who remained untamed, but merciful toward the vanquished, harsh to his servants, expansive toward strangers, prodigal in public, thrifty in private. He was most diligent in guarding and maintaining peace, liberal beyond comparison in almsgiving, and the peculiar defender of the Holy Land, a lover of humility, an oppressor of the nobility, and a contemner of the proud. Another famous description by the court writer Walter Mapp remarked upon many of the same characteristics. Henry was blessed with sound limbs and a handsome countenance, well-read, easy of approach, ever on his travels, moving in intolerable stages like a courier. He showed very little mercy to his household which accompanied him. He had great experience of dogs and birds, and was a very keen follower of hounds. 
even when one allows for the flattery and platitudes native to courtiers' pen portraits, it was clear that the men who knew him found Henry a striking, energetic ruler. From his earliest years Henry lived a peripatetic life. Although he invested heavily in magnificent castles and palaces, he rarely stayed anywhere for long. His travelling court was frequently described by visitors as disgusting, smelly and ratty, with the wine served so vinegarish that it had to be filtered through the teeth. Such were the living conditions of a man in perpetual motion. The chronicler Ralph de Disseto described an astonished Louis VII's opinion on Henry's ability to pop up anywhere and everywhere about his territories without warning. It was as if he were flying rather than riding on horseback, said the French king. He was, said the twelfth-century biographer Herbert of Bosom, like a human chariot dragging all after him. The king could hardly drag his young family about with him, though, and after the splendour of the coronation, the Plantagenets found they needed somewhere to live. Their first son, William, was little more than a year old at the time of his parents' coronation. A second son, Henry, was born on February 28, 1155. Both the boys and Eleanor required households while they were in the country. The enormous Anglo-Saxon palace of Westminster had deteriorated badly during the Civil War, and was now uninhabitable. So in 1155 the family moved to the royal palace of Bermondsey on the opposite bank of the Thames, to the south of the city of London. From the palace Eleanor was able to visit London as she pleased. She would have found the English capital a busy, ripe city, frantic with commerce and entertainment, jesters and jugglers, crime, filth, despair, and humanity. The Canterbury cleric and biographer William Fitzstephen wrote a famously wide-eyed description of the twelfth-century city. "'London is fortunate in the wholesomeness of its climate, the devotion of its Christians, the strength of its fortifications, its well-situated location, the respectability of its citizens, and the propriety of their wives.' Furthermore, it takes great pleasure in its sports, and is prolific in producing men of superior quality. On the east side stands the Royal Fortress, i.e. the Tower of London, of tremendous size and strength, whose walls and floors rise up from the deepest foundations, the mortar being mixed with animals' blood. On the west side are two heavily fortified castles— Running continuously around the north side is the city wall, high and wide, punctuated at intervals with turrets, and with seven double-gated entrance ways. Two miles from the city, and linked to it by a populous suburb, there rises above the bank of that river the King's Palace of Westminster, a structure without equal, with inner and outer fortifications. To the north there are tilled fields, pastures, and pleasant level meadows with streams flowing through them, where watermill wheels turned by the current make a pleasing sound. Not far off spreads out a vast forest, its copses dense with foliage concealing wild animals, stags, does, boars, and wild bulls. Every morning you can find people carrying on their various trades, those selling specific types of goods, and those who hire themselves out as labourers, each in their particular locations engaged in their tasks. Nor should I forget to mention that there is in London, on the river-bank amidst the ships, the wine for sale, and the storerooms for wine, a public cook-shop. On a daily basis there, depending on the season, can be found fried or boiled foods and dishes, fish large and small, meat, lower quality for the poor, finer cuts for the wealthy, game and fowl, large and small. Those with a fancy for delicacies can obtain for themselves the meat of goose, guinea-hen, or woodcock, finding what thereafter is no great chore, since all the delicacies are set out in front of them. Middlemen from every nation under heaven are pleased to bring to the city ships full of merchandise. This was a busy, lively, international city, and it must have kindled in Eleanor memories of Paris, the grandest city in northern Europe, with its own rivers, palaces, and rolling meadows, the site of her first experience of queenship. 
Something in London must have agreed with the Queen, for during her first spell in England, Eleanor managed what she most manifestly had not when she was Queen of France, and gave birth to a rapid succession of healthy children. In September 1155, as soon as she had recovered from young Henry's birth, Eleanor was pregnant again. A girl, Matilda, was delivered in June 1156, named for the empress who had struggled so long to secure the Plantagenet's new realm. Matilda's birth would have relieved some of the sadness Eleanor felt in June 1156, when William, her first son, died. The little boy was three years old. He was buried with dignity at the feet of his great-grandfather Henry I in Reading Abbey. It would have been a time of grief for the family, but child mortality was a fact even of royal life in the Middle Ages, and the best insurance against it was a large brood of children. Without pause or delay, two more boys were born, Richard, who was born at Oxford in September 1157, and Geoffrey, who came almost exactly a year later. Henry, Matilda, Richard, and Geoffrey. By the end of 1158, Henry and Eleanor had four healthy children below the age of four. Three more children would survive to adulthood. Eleanor, born 1162, Joan, born 1165, and John, born 1167. A gap of four years, during which Henry was away from his wife, managing the farther reaches of his realm, separated the two bursts of procreation. During her husband's absence, Eleanor played a prominent role in royal rule and ceremony, presented to councils of magnates with her young children, and assuming the role of regent while Henry was away. When she travelled overseas with him, as they did in 1156 on a tour of Aquitaine, and again for a Christmas court in Normandy in 1158, she often took her children with her. For the most part, however, she remained in England, usually residing at palaces in Salisbury and Winchester. When he was at home, Henry travelled frequently about his kingdom, addressing issues of government and diplomacy, while finding time to indulge his great passion for the hunt. As he travelled, Henry grew familiar with the best locations both for government and for the chase. Very swiftly after his arrival, work began to transform the hunting lodges of Clarendon and Woodstock into full-blown palaces to match the sumptuous comfort of any in Europe. But all the palaces in the world could not answer the pressing question of the eleven-fifties. How could the new king heal a country so deeply damaged by civil war? England had supplied Henry with what the chronicler Richard of Poitiers described as the honour and reverence of his royal name. But this rich land, with its ports and towns, its hard-drinking, hard-working populace, and its ancient history, needed to be rescued from the doldrums. Henry would have to reimpose on his new realm the royal authority enjoyed by his grandfather Henry I. It amounted effectively to a mission of reconquest. The realm was a shambles. Under Stephen, royal revenue had fallen by two-thirds. Royal lands, castles, and offices had been granted away, often in perpetuity. The county farm, a staple royal income collected by the sheriffs, was running dismally low. Earldoms with semi-regal powers proliferated, and in places the country was not only ungoverned, but seemingly ungovernable. Relations between church and crown were at a stalemate following a long-running feud between Stephen and Archbishop Theobald over their respective jurisdictions. Fortresses built as the Normans had conquered South Wales had fallen into the hands of barons and native rulers. The far north of England was effectively ruled by the King of the Scots. Henry's first task was to stamp out the few embers of rebellion— his coronation charter had deliberately avoided confirming any liberties or possessions that had been granted by Stephen, either to churchmen or to lay magnates. Anything granted since Henry I's reign was therefore held to be illegitimate, unless reconfirmed by the new king. He ordered the return to the crown of all castles, towns, and lands that had been granted away under Stephen, followed by an abolition of the earldoms that Stephen had granted to his supporters. In many cases, confiscated lands were granted back to their holders, but Henry was sending a clear message, 
Lordship now began with him, and everyone owed his position and possessions to the Plantagenet crown. At the same time, directly after Christmas 1154, Henry set in motion a rapid decommissioning program to enforce the destruction of illegal castles and the expulsion of foreign mercenaries. Castles packed with hired soldiers were the primary expressions of military power in the twelfth century, and the more that existed across the realm, particularly without royal sanction, the more violent and unstable society tended to be. As a result, hundreds of castles fell in a juddering demolition project during the course of 1155. The sound of falling timber was accompanied by a rush from the shores of Flemish soldiers, so despised by the chroniclers and ordinary people alike. Henry had to take serious direct action against only a few of the magnates. William of O'Merle, who had cemented his position in Yorkshire so as to make it virtually untouched by royal influence, was deprived of his lands and of Scarborough Castle, the towering stone stronghold that sat on a headland, dominating sea approaches, and the windswept northeast of the realm. Roger of Hereford, a Welsh marcher lord of the sort disinclined to obey royal authority, was persuaded to surrender castles at Gloucester and Hereford by the sensible mediation of his cousin Gilbert Folio, Bishop of Hereford. Henry of Blois, Bishop of Winchester, Stephen's brother, chose to flee the country rather than submit to his brother's successor. In doing so, he forfeited to Henry six castles. The only magnate who required serious military measures to be taken against him was Hugh Mortimer, Lord of Wigmore Castle, who in the late spring clung to three castles in the Midlands and forced Henry to march an army against him. Even he was allowed to keep his lands after making a formal submission to Henry. This was a lightning clean-up operation, undertaken in the spirit of reconciliation, not revenge, which owed a great deal to Henry's earlier successful diplomacy in establishing and prosecuting the terms of the Peace of Winchester. That there was so little resistance to him, and no threat of a serious rival for the throne, demonstrated the broad appeal of Henry's strong, unified lordship. He was wielding the sword and the scales of justice like a king. This speed of reconciliation was a necessity, not a luxury, for England was only one part of the extensive Plantagenet domains. In 1156 Henry was forced to leave England to deal with a rebellion in Anjou led by his younger brother Geoffrey, who believed that under the terms of their father's will Henry's accession as King of England ought to have triggered the handover of Anjou, Maine, and Touraine to Geoffrey, and indeed it was quite possible that this had been the elder Geoffrey Plantagenet's intention. There was no precedent for a single man to rule England, Normandy, and Anjou as one. Henry had no intention of handing over the heartlands of his patrimony to his vexatious younger brother. Geoffrey had shown himself untrustworthy and disloyal, when in 1151 he had joined forces with Louis VII and Eustace to attack Henry's positions in Normandy. Giving Geoffrey lands that sat directly between Henry's Duchy of Normandy and Eleanor's Duchy of Aquitaine would be asking for trouble. It would also damage Henry's ambition to rule his extraordinary patchwork of territories under his own direct sovereignty. But Geoffrey had to be appeased. On February 2nd, 1156, a family conference was held in Rouen, under the eye of the Empress Matilda, who had been living in retirement in the Norman capital for nearly a decade, and had not even crossed to England for Henry's coronation. Despite this, she was a regular confidante and counsellor to her eldest son, teaching him, according to the chronicler Walter Mapp, to "'spin out the affairs of everyone,' never confer anything on anyone at the recommendation of any person unless he had seen and learned about it. Under his mother's guidance, Henry met Geoffrey along with their youngest brother William and their aunt Sibylla, Countess of Flanders, to negotiate a deal. To isolate his brother diplomatically, Henry had performed homage to Louis VII for Normandy, Anjou, and Aquitaine in late January, and had sent an embassy to the newly elected Pope, Adrian IV, the only Englishman ever to hold the title, to request release from the oath he had sworn to uphold his father's will. He was determined to hold on to Anjou, whatever the cost. The peacekeeping efforts came predictably to nothing. 
Soon after the conference broke up, Geoffrey formally rebelled. The quarrel was resolved only later in the year when the people of Nantes and Lower Brittany elected Geoffrey their new count. It was a stroke of luck that found him a rich new territory to call his own, and doused his disappointment at being, as he saw it, disinherited by his newly elevated elder brother. A delighted Henry vouched for Geoffrey's election to this strategically useful new position. He paid off his brother's claim to a Plantagenet inheritance with the gift of a single border castle, Loudon, and a cash pension. This was an acceptable price to pay for quashing a distracting rift. Geoffrey's new position in Nantes extended the Plantagenet family enterprise farther downstream along the Loire and closer to the Breton seaboard, virtually the only piece of French coastline they did not already control. This appeased Geoffrey until he rather conveniently died in 1158, but it also showed that for all his brilliance in pacifying his new kingdom, Henry would have to work with the unceasing effort of an Alexander or a Charlemagne if he wished to keep his vast continental possessions from breaking apart. L'Espace Plantagenet the 1150s were a glorious decade for Henry. From a position of insignificance and insecurity in 1151, he had extended his power far and wide. The progress was relentless and impressive. In 1155, Pope Adrian IV gave Henry a blessing to expand his lordship in Ireland when he granted the papal bull Lord Abiliter, exhorting Henry to reform the Irish Church. Henry did not act on Lord Abiliter straight away, but a principle had been established. In 1157, Henry took the homage of Malcolm IV of Scotland at Peveril Castle, regaining the northern border counties that had been usurped during the Civil War, and exchanging them for the Earldom of Huntingdon, which was a traditional Scottish honour. That same year, Henry drove an army into Wales, aiming to re-establish the dominant position that had been established by his Norman ancestors. He was almost killed during an ambush in Eulow Wood near Flint during one of the major military exercises of the campaign, and found the warlike Welsh as fierce an enemy as every one of his predecessors had. In the end, the two great Welsh princes, Owain of Gwyneth and Hrysap Griffith of de Habarth, were persuaded to submit in the face of a massive show of military strength. This freed Henry in 1158 to use the threat of armed force to claim the county of Nantes in the name of his late brother, thus expanding his direct power into the Duchy of Brittany. In the same year he betrothed his eldest son Henry to Louis VII's daughter Margaret. The Vexin, a tiny but strategically vital portion of the borderlands between the Ile de France and Normandy, was given as a dowry to be delivered on the celebration of the marriage. Piece by piece, front by front, Henry was proving to all the princes and kings with whom he rubbed shoulders that the Plantagenets were a power to reckon with. As the 1150s drew to a close, Henry was the master of more territory than any of his ancestors could ever have dreamed of, but even that was not enough. In the summer of 1159, a season when the sun beat mercilessly down on the southern valleys of France, a gigantic army rumbled toward the city of Toulouse. Inside the walls, thirty-five thousand souls quaked with fear as they listened to the tread of foot-soldiers, the thud and creak of war-horses and wagons, the blare of trumpets and drums, and the monstrous drag of siege-engines. As the army marched, it left destruction in its wake. Cahors, Auvillard, and Villemur were ransacked and torched, Crops were burned and property was plundered. The whole region of Toulouse contemplated a new scourge of the West. "'Henry II terrifies not only the Provençals as far as the Rhone and the Alps,' wrote the author and diplomat John of Salisbury. "'He also strikes at the princes of Spain and Gaul through the fortresses he has destroyed and the peoples he has subdued.' The army with which Henry II crossed southern France in June 1159 was the largest he would ever raise. The cost for mercenaries in England alone exceeded £9,000, more than the previous year's entire royal income. 
the poet Stephen of Rouen wrote that Henry came with iron, missiles, and machines, while the Norman chronicler Robert of Torigny called it the military force of the whole of Normandy, England, Aquitaine, and the other provinces which were subject to him. There was no doubt of his purpose. Henry came in conquest. His aim was to take Toulouse from its ruler, Count Raymond V, and add it to the Duchy of Aquitaine. The king was claiming the inheritance of his wife, Queen Eleanor, wrote Torigny. But Henry was doing more than that. He was engaged in a wide-reaching campaign to assert his rights as overlord to a vast expanse of territory that stretched from the foothills of Scotland to the Pyrenees. The army included many great nobles. His recently reconciled neighbour Malcolm IV of Scotland sailed south with a flotilla and joined Henry's army at Poitiers. Southern lords, including Raymond Berengar IV, Count of Barcelona, and Raymond Roncavel, Lord of Béziers and Carcassonne, joined in too, gleeful at the prospect of harassing a neighbour. And somewhere in the middle rode the churchman who had organised the campaign, Thomas Becket, Chancellor of England and Archdeacon of Canterbury, wearing helmet and hauberk, his armour gleaming in the sun. Becket had command of what is said to have been a personal troop of seven hundred knights. This figure is almost certainly an exaggeration. Even so, we can be sure that he mustered a strong military force, particularly for a cleric. The siege of Toulouse lasted from June to September 1159, and represented the height of Henry's ambitions in Europe during the early years of his reign. He had expended considerable time and effort reforming and securing the vast territories he had accumulated between 1149 and 1154, but he had no intention of making do with his lot. Toulouse marked the logical conclusion of a policy he developed following the pacification of England. He used armies, quite often massive armies, to encroach on territory on the fringes of his already extensive borders. He seemed to want to become not merely a king and a duke, but an emperor. In reality, his policy was more pragmatic than this suggests. Henry aimed to pursue all his rights in all his capacities at all times. There were occasions when he used military means, and others when he used diplomacy. He drove hard to have his lordship recognized wherever he could do so, tidying up all the fraying parts of his huge network of territories, by waging wars against the fringes. Toulouse was just another border region in which his authority was challenged. He was leading a war not so much of conquest as of recognition. Toulouse, however, was a famously tough nut to crack. Eleanor of Aquitaine held a rather tenuous claim to the county via her paternal grandmother Philippa, who had been passed over for inheritance in the 1090s. In 1141, Louis VII had attempted to invade in much the same manner as Henry did in 1159, but had been repulsed. That did not discourage Henry. He had a claim, the wherewithal to raise a large army, and momentum gained from his success against the Welsh and the Bretons. No doubt, as John of Salisbury reported, the princes of Spain and Gaul remarked upon the size of the army Henry had assembled but they would also have been sceptical of Henry's chances of success. Toulouse was a large city, well protected, positioned on a sharp bend in the Garonne, and divided into three fortified sections. The ancient Roman city was adjacent to a walled bourg that had sprung up rather later around the vast, beautiful basilica of Saint-Sernin. A wall ran around both these two areas, and between them and to the south lay the Chateau Narbonnet, a separate castle in which the city's ruler resided. It could not be parched into submission, because the river provided a constant supply of water and did not dry up during the summer. For all the efforts of Henry's invading force and all the misery they inflicted on the countryside and castles of the region, the sceptics were vindicated. As had happened to Louis in 1141, a king once again had thrown his might at the city defences and found himself thwarted. How did so huge a force fail to overrun a relatively tiny prize? Perhaps the liberal lordship of the Counts of Toulouse was preferred to the clunking mastery suggested by Henry's invading force. 
perhaps the city's natural defences really did make it untakeable. In any case, the decisive blow that finished Henry's campaign was struck in the early autumn of 1159, when he was caught unawares by the arrival in Toulouse of Louis VII. Of all the lords in France, it was Louis whom Henry had troubled the most during his expansions in the 1150s. The Duke of Normandy's elevation to the rank of king made him a dangerous vassal for the Capetian crown, one with military resources and a pedigree that far outstripped any other French nobleman's. This was most obviously a problem where the boundaries of the Duchy of Normandy met French royal lands in the area known as the Vexin. It was true that in 1156, in a ceremony of great pageantry and political symbolism, Henry had done homage to the French king, swearing to Louis that, I, King Henry, will safeguard the life, limbs, and landed honour of the King of France as my lord, if he will secure for me as his fidelis my life and limbs and lands which he has settled on me, for I am his man. But Louis's feudal status would be worth nothing if he sat by and allowed Henry to conquer Toulouse, an area that he had nearly failed to bring within his own direct control. Moreover, Count Raymond was the French king's brother-in-law. To let him down would proclaim a very hollow lordship. Louis arrived in Toulouse knowing that his mere presence at Count Raymond's shoulder would force Henry to consider very carefully whether he could afford to continue his campaign. Attacking Raymond alone was one thing, to take on Louis and Raymond together was an act of explicit aggression that would cause Henry untold problems farther north in Normandy and Anjou, areas he had been at pains to keep in good order. Furthermore, to take on Louis in an armed contest and lose would undermine the symbolic value of the whole Toulouse expedition. Henry took counsel with his barons and his key advisers, including Becket. In the absence of a specific insult to his royal honour, the barons counselled that it was unacceptable to attack the French king. Becket protested, calling for an immediate assault on the city. He was outvoted and ignored. Henry gave up the fight. Claiming that he wished to spare the Capetian king and the city, he withdrew from Toulouse around the Feast of Michaelmas. The chronicler Roger of Howden called Toulouse Henry's unfinished business. It was not quite a disaster, but it was undeniably a failure. The most profitable event of the campaign was tangential to the siege itself. William, Count of Boulogne, King Stephen's younger son, who had joined Henry on campaign, died on his way back to England in October 1159. His extensive English estates reverted to the crown. Otherwise, all that could be said for an expensive summer spent hurling rocks at the wall of a city was that Henry had tested to the limit his capacity for wielding military power. There was another cost to the failure of the Toulouse campaign. It brought into question for the first time the relationship between Henry and his closest counsellor, the Chancellor Thomas Becket. Unholy War In the summer of 1158, a year before he led Henry's troops to the walls of Toulouse, Thomas Becket rode at the head of an even grander procession in the city of Paris. Coming in peace as the Chancellor of England and servant of the English King, he radiated solemn magnificence and glory. Becket had been sent on an embassy to negotiate the betrothal of Henry's three-year-old son and namesake to Louis's baby daughter Margaret, creating a dynastic union between the two royal houses and securing the Vexin for the Plantagenets. It was appropriate that he should impress the French king with the wealth and dignity of his master. Becket put on an extraordinary show. In private he was a rigorously pious man who scourged himself regularly, wore a hair-shirt, ate frugally, and never took a mistress. But Henry's Chancellor knew how to entertain a crowd. He swept into Paris with exotic gifts and lavish pageantry—dogs, monkeys, and a seemingly endless train of servants, all testifying to the English king's largesse and splendour. A vivid record was kept by William Fitzstephen, who accompanied Becket and saw it all firsthand. In his company he had some two hundred horsemen, knights, clerks, stewards, and men-in-waiting, men-at-arms and squires of noble family, all in ordered ranks. 
All these and all their followers wore bright new festal garments. He also took twenty-four suits and many silk cloaks to leave behind him as presents, and all kinds of party-coloured clothes and foreign furs, hangings and carpets for a bishop's guest-room. Hounds and hawks were in the train, and eight five-horse chariots drawn by shire-horses. On every horse was a sturdy groom in a new tunic, and on every chariot a warden. Two carts carried nothing but beer, for the French, who are not familiar with the brew, a healthy drink, clear, dark as wine, and finer in flavour. Others bore food and drink, others docils, carpets, bags of night attire, and luggage in general. He had twelve sumpter horses and eight chests of table-places, gold and silver. One horse carried the plate, the altar furnishings, and the books of his chapel. Every horse had a groom in a smart turnout. Every chariot had a fierce great mastiff on a leash, standing in the cart or walking behind it, and every sumpter beast had a long-tailed monkey on its back. Then there were about two hundred and fifty men marching six or ten abreast, singing as they went in the English fashion. At intervals came braces of staghounds and greyhounds with their attendants, then the men-at-arms with the shields and chargers of the knights, then the other men-at-arms and boys and men carrying hawks, last of all came the Chancellor and some of his friends. Arrived in Paris, he loaded every baron, knight, master, scholar, and burgess with gifts of plate, clothing, horses, and money. It was a show fit for a king. In 1158 Thomas Becket was fast becoming one of Henry II's closest friends and most trusted advisers. The king had found him working as a clerk in the service of Theobald, Archbishop of Canterbury. Theobald had admired the young man's ambitious capacity for hard work, and had promoted him through his service until in 1154 Becket had become Archdeacon of Canterbury. It was in this post that he became known to Henry, who was encouraged to think of Becket as a highly competent candidate for the post of English Chancellor. In 1155, on Theobald's recommendation, Henry had placed Becket at the top of the English administration. Becket rose to the task. He excelled in royal service. Twelfth-century government was still a scrappy, personal business. The courtier Walter Mapp has left us a dramatic but highly plausible image of Henry's court in full pelt. Whenever the king goes out, he is seized by the crowd and pulled and pushed hither and thither. He is assaulted by shouts and roughly handled, yet he listens to all with patience and seemingly without anger, until hustled beyond bearing, he silently retreats to some place of quiet. At the heart of such a throng the king required a large and sophisticated system of household servants, clerks, diplomats, and administrators. It was this sort of loose organization over which Becket presided. Like the great royal servants of centuries to come, Henry VIII's chief minister Thomas Wolsey, or Elizabeth I's principal secretary William Cecil, Becket spared a charismatic monarch the strain of day-to-day -day government, and turned his grand visions into reality. Becket reached the height of his power around 1160, when he was just past forty, and the king was approaching twenty-seven. The Chancellor was a tall, pleasant-looking man, with studied manners and cultivated skills in courtly conversation. His rise to power, wealth, and glory had been extraordinary. He had enjoyed a good education at Merton Priory in Sussex, and a London grammar school, perhaps St. Paul's. But his progress through life was cut short when his merchant father's business premises burned down. He spent two years studying in Paris during his early twenties, but never completed the full education in canon and civil law that distinguished any ambitious young medieval man of letters. All his life he would overcompensate for the sense of inferiority that lingered. What Becket lacked in intellectual finesse he made up for with ambition. As well as Chancellor, he was Archdeacon of Canterbury, an important position in the English Church. He accumulated rich benefices everywhere from Kent to Yorkshire, and kept in London a fine and luxurious household, to which several magnates sent their sons for an education. With his pale skin, dark hair, and long nose, the Chancellor could not have cut a more contrasting figure with the short, red-haired king, with his raw energy and ease in company more inborn than acquired. 
Beckett set great store by values that meant very little to his king, but that were essential to maintaining the dignity of kingship. According to Beckett's biographer Fitzstephen, the Chancellor hardly ever dined without the company of sundry earls and bishops. He kept a fine table with delicate food served in fine vessels of gold and silver. He enjoyed all the lordly pageantry that bored the king, and Henry was happy for him to carry it out in his stead. The king seems to have enjoyed the almost comical contrast between himself and his chancellor, and occasionally poked fun at his friend. Fitzstephen recorded a famous story of Becket and Henry riding together through the wintry streets of London early in their friendship. The king pointed out a poor beggar shivering in the cold, and remarked to his chancellor that it would be a fine thing to give him a thick, warm cloak. When Becket agreed that this would indeed be charitable, Henry grabbed him and forcibly ripped the fine scarlet and grey cape from his back, which he presented to the bewildered beggar. Becket did not share in the hilarity this caused among the royal attendants, but Henry always insisted on pricking his friend's pride when he could. He was known to ride into the Chancellor's dinner hall, jump from his horse, and sit down to eat. The experience must have grated on Becket as much as it amused the king. Yet despite the irritations and the small indignities, Becket was Henry's friend, trusted servant, and confidant. Most important, the king saw Becket as the bridge between two worlds, crown 